Greetings and peace, brethren and sistren, wherever you may be tuning in from. This is Baraka Blue, and you're listening to Path and Present Podcast. It's my honor and pleasure to introduce this new episode in which I had a conversation with Philip Goldberg, who is the author of one of my favorite books that I've read in the past couple years entitled American Veda and then the subtitle is from Emerson and the Beatles to yoga and meditation how Indian spirituality changed the West and the book is a deep reflection on how Indian philosophy and spirituality and practice um, comes East and affects the West Um, but it, you know, in addition to the, the historical narrative that he tells, which is very rich and layered and really well-researched, um, what really makes it a classic for me is that he has a lot of reflections, deep reflections on what happens when a tradition from the East comes to the West and what things take, what things don't take, what approaches work, what don't work. How is a tradition uh, maintained and how is it transformed or adapted to meet certain circumstances? So that's one of the topics that I uh, am very much interested in. So when I read the book, um, I was highlighting and underlining and circling. Um, There was a lot that I took away from it. So I'm happy that I was able to speak with him. And hopefully in the coming months, we can have other authors of some books that were influential on myself on the podcast. Um, So thank you for everyone who has supported the podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes if you haven't yet. Um, Then you can get each episode directly on your phone or whatever device you listen to podcasts on. And if you like the podcast, please do um, comment, subscribe, rate the podcast. That helps it kind of grow in the iTunes charts and helps more people know about it. Um, Of course, just word of mouth. Uh, It's been beautiful to watch the podcast spread over the past few months. And a lot of that is, most of it is just word of mouth. So if you like it, if you find some benefit then please do share. Um, And then if you wanted to support the podcast, financially you can through Patreon. And Patreon allows you to give a small amount or an enormous amount, uh, whichever you please, monthly. And um, it makes it real easy for you. So the link to the Patreon is on our SoundCloud, um, soundcloud.com slash pathandpresent. And about all I wanted to say before getting into this conversation. So uh, I'm sending light and love to all beings and thank you for tuning in. Family, global family, uh, we're honored to have this guest, Philip Goldberg. I guess the whole book was, you know, really beautiful to me. And I was like underlining it. A lot of like epiphanies like, yes, 
Um, but one thing that stuck out um, overall was this idea you talk about, you, you, you don't just have a history, but you really get into some reflections and some analysis of what is successful when a tradition of the East comes West. And mm -hmm. one of the uh, frameworks you use is this idea of the, the five functions of religion, the trans, mm -hmm. or I think mm -hmm. it is translation, transmission, transaction, transformation, and transcendence. So maybe you could just explain a little bit about that, that those categories and, and how that kind of applies to Vedanta or Hindu or Indian philosophy coming to the West? Yeah, sure. Um, it, it, that came about uh, because I was thinking about what it was that made uh, the, um, the uh, teachings of the East so um, appealing to so many of us, what was it that was missing? Because that, that's a, a critical question. Right. And, uh, and, you know, in my book, I go back, uh, you know, a couple of hundred years to when the, uh, the uh, first good texts and translations of uh, yogic texts, Vedantic texts, um, started to come in, and it, they were appealing to people like uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought, you know, what was missing? And if you look at all the um, um, writings of important people who adopted these teachings and found value in them, you, you find certain things that were consistent. So that led me to think about what um, religion uh, provides to people in general and, and what are the functions. And I came up with these uh, five functions that um, um, seem to, to uh, fit. And so uh, transmission uh, refers to the aspects of religious traditions that uh, pass along from one generation to another, customs, rituals, sense of history, mm -hmm. connection to ancestors, and, and that sort of thing. Um, it connects people with, with the past and with each other. And uh, then there was translation, what I call translation, because religion at its best can help people uh, interpret what's going on in their lives and in the, the larger society, uh, that part of religion that gives people meaning and purpose. Now, I'm not evaluating any particular religion for their claims or anything. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying this, these are things that uh, uh, people find value in. And then there was uh, what I call transaction, which was um, uh, one thing religions do well is to create a sense of community for people and provide uh, guidelines for, for how to conduct yourself in the world, mm -hmm. morals, ethics, and that sort of thing. Um, then there were two 
aspects of religion that you don't always find. Uh, and that I felt the Eastern traditions were particularly good at. And that one is transformation. Religion at its best so should change people. It should, it should, your, your engagement with a religious tradition uh, presumably changes you for the better. And in certain ways, most religions do do that. Mm -hmm. But the, the degree of transformation the level of transformation uh, and the the purpose of transformation is particularly well articulated in the traditions of the East that came to us, mainly the uh, yogic traditions of Hinduism and the Buddhist traditions. And the final of the five was transcendence, and that that yearning we all have to expand the way we normally experience ourselves and life and transcend boundaries, transcend the boundaries of, of the ego and the personality and uh, connect to the transcendent essence of the world beyond the senses, beyond uh, the, the mind. And, and it is that element of transcendence which in turn produces great transformation hmm. um, that um, I felt was the most appealing aspect of, uh, of the Eastern traditions to most people. There are many other things that appeal to them, um, but that element is what I think was most lacking in ordinary mainstream religion and that most people were drawn to. There's a, there, the other element of that is, and it fits into this model of these five functions in certain ways, is that um, the philosophies that came here, the way they were articulated by the uh, gurus and writers who uh, transmitted the teachings, held up rationally hmm. to, to what we know from science and history objectively. And it didn't require uh, believing in anything that contradicted reason or logic or um, what we know of the world. So those were the kind of uh, phenomena, the, the kind of uh, elements that I think made the, the transmission of these teachings to the West uh, successful. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, there's so much there um, that Western religions, you know, Christianity and Judaism, they were, in, in a certain sense, uh, fulfilling the, the first three, right? They were transmission, yeah. there was the rules, you know, and yeah. there was there's the translation as far as understanding, you know, a kind of paradigm as far as to understand the world and, and give meaning to life. But somewhere along the way, they had lost or at least de-emphasized, shall we say, the kind of spiritual transformation and then the transcendence or the kind of mystical experiential uh, knowledge of God or the ultimate reality. Yeah, and, and we should 
be careful not to uh, suggest that uh, the elements of transformation and, trans- and, and transcendence were entirely lacking. And sure. it's just that they, um, um, especially the transcendence part, they, they, were, um, they were not as systematically and methodologically maintained in the West the way they were in the Eastern traditions. They, people could go to church, you know, on Christmas Eve or, you know, to a synagogue on the holidays or whatever and, and have a sense of transcendence that may be there, but it may not. And, it, and there's no, they didn't have many um, methods for uh, making it a regular part of life. Um, and so, therefore, the the trans the inner transformation. You know, the Western religions have changed people's lives for the better uh, in, in terms of their outer behavior and their uh, ethics and morals and so forth. But it doesn't necessarily transform their consciousness in ways that the yogic traditions and Buddhist traditions and all the mystical aspects of all the religions really mm-hmm. emphasize. And so um, it's not that I'm saying they're entirely lacking. It's just that in, in their ordinary expression, uh, people weren't finding that uh, as readily as they would uh with the methods that came from the East. And even, in, in, you know, you, we, you didn't mention Islam, and, and uh, that's also part of the Western uh, historical religion. And I know from what I've known of your biography that you were drawn to Sufism and, and the Sufi path. And, you know, that too um, is providing those uh, that focus on inner transformation and transcendence and, and main, uh, has maintained uh, various methods and practices for uh, uh, inculcating that and producing that, whereas uh, ordinary ma- mainstream uh, uh, conventional Islam might, might uh, be lacking it for, for most practitioners. Right. And sim- similarly, and, and, and it's also true, you know, to be... Uh, perfectly honest. I mean, it's perfect. It's also true of Hinduism and 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 Buddhism as uh, practiced uh, by uh, ordinary people in in Asia, where the you know religions have have become a less uh, inc- uh, oriented around uh, inner practice uh, for the or everyday person. So the, you have you have that sort of normative everyday religion, and then you have the religion of the real seeker, who could take any religion and find its mystical and contemplative uh, elements and take it deeper. And that's that's what the uh, the traditions of Asia um, have have maintained well, and that's what they emphasized when they came to the West. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And one of my friends, uh, Vinnie Ferraro, who's a Buddhist teacher in the Bay Area, mentioned to me, you know, years ago that, you know, if you go to when he traveled in Asia, you know, there's this strong divide between, you know, kind of the monks who are meditating and, and really kind of, you could say, walking the path, at least theoretically, and then the kind of lay person who 
the relationship with the actual kind of method of Buddhism, uh, as far as the meditative practice, uh, is almost non-existent. And the relationship with the monk is is more or less, um, you know, go to them for prayers and blessings and and that's right. And so right. he he mentioned that what's happened in in the West as Buddhism comes west is there's this really interesting thing where you know the average practitioner who takes up buddhism is somewhere in between a monk and a lay person mm. a hybrid almost that's right and 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 that's very true and um you see um if the people um i uh, emphasize and and profile in american data uh, the the famous gurus who came here, they were very conscious of not bringing, not trying to replicate everyday Hinduism from India in the West. We we would have had no use for that. Uh, people didn't want to be Hindus. People didn't want to. They weren't going to. Be. Now we have Hindu temples here in America, but we only have Hindu temples in America because we have uh, citizens who, who are from India. Mm -hmm. And like other immigrants, they build temples in the form they're familiar with. Um, so temple, ordinary everyday temple Hinduism, uh, you know, and the, the Hinduism of uh, people doing uh, ceremonies and, and uh, at home and, uh, uh, doing uh, uh, rituals uh, aimed at the deities and so forth. That was a, a, a minor part uh, of what came to, to the West and was not emphasized because it, there would not have been a receptive audience for it. So they, were, they emphasized practical methods of meditation and yoga and and that what we're now so familiar with and and a, and a way of uh, presenting the philosophy uh in the case of what i emphasize in my book uh of vedanta um that uh, could be articulated in ways that would appeal to the western mind and make sense to the western mind and that's very different from everyday Hinduism. Not that it's entirely lacking, mm -hmm. but the everyday uh, Hindu in India doesn't necessarily avail himself or herself of that, uh, just as the rituals that were handed down, and uh, doesn't necessarily uh, go into depth in the uh, interior work of meditation and so forth. Um, and but but they do it more so than than the average Christian or Jew does in America with right. their with their tradition. Yeah, because I think that that that's really a great point, and I think there's such an interesting parallel here because, you know, in some ways it might not be a one to one correlation, but there's a lot of similarities. You know, in the sense that Vedanta is to Hinduism what Sufism is to Islam in many senses, and you know. You can have the, in, in other words, the ones that were successful, the, the teachers and the gurus that came that were successful were the ones that they emphasize what you pointed out, transformation and transcendence, and they kind of de-emphasize the traditional transaction, transmission, and translation of the kind of outward of the religious tradition. And um, there's an amazing story of Inayat Khan, 
who was one of the early teachers of Sufism, mm-hmm. actually came from India. And mm-hmm. he, at first, he was teaching uh, his small group of followers the five daily prayers and things like that. But he found that there was all these barriers to Islam, even then. It was like the early 1900s. But then he started to see that um, this kind of theosophical school had spread. And, and so if he was to, art, to articulate the similarities of Sufism with um, you know, theosophy, then he would actually find a fertile ground. So he kind of de-Islamicized his Sufism mm-hmm. and universalized it so that it could speak to the, the, the group of spiritual seekers that were there in America about a hundred years ago. And I think maybe you could speak to the, the parallels with the early gurus that... Well, well you, you articulated it really well. Um, I think uh, one of the uh, uh, key factors in the success of some of the early teachers who came, if you, if you look at the chronology of it, um, you had people like Emerson and Thoreau, but you know they're the famous ones, but a lot of other people, mostly intellectuals, get becoming fascinated with Indian philosophy as they found it in books. I often joke that when Thoreau was at uh, Walden Pond for those uh, famous two years, he had uh, a copy of the Bhagavad Gita that he had uh, borrowed from um, Emerson. And, and he, in writing about it, helped make uh, that Indian philosophy and the Gita uh, well-known in the world. Um, but there were no yoga studios in, in Concord, Massachusetts at that time. Now there are probably a dozen of them. And um, so they were mainly reading philosophy and somehow maybe improvising meditation techniques from what they read. Then you had the, the influence of, of especially Emerson was very great on what came to be called the New Thought Movement, which you know, started in New England and spread. And that included theosophy, which uh, was at one point the, the most well-known uh, of the New Thought uh, world and, and in many ways separate from it. Uh, but there were a lot of theosophists and a lot of people in uh, Christian science and the unity uh, church movement and other new thought movements in the late 19th century into the early part of the 20th century. They still exist, but they're a small uh, percentage of the population now. And um, that they constituted the the uh, the prime audience for the gurus who came, mm-hmm. starting with Swami Vivekananda and then the others. They were ripe uh, from all their reading and then the work of the of people like Madame Blavatsky, who started Theosophy, who drew from Hinduism and Buddhism and all the esoteric Western uh, thinkers as well. So it's very parallel. And uh, I'm, hap- I'm glad to know that about Inayat Khan. I, I didn't know that little piece of his story. But, but you know, that's, this comes into the category of adaptation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I give a lot of talks to yoga groups and uh, people who want to know more about this history. And, and one of the things that's very important for people to understand and, and for uh, the people representing these teachings in the modern world to understand and, and um, you, uh, uh, utilize is that um, 
these teachings always have to be adapted. Esoteric teachings, ancient teachings that work, have to be adapted to the time and place uh, that one is in at any particular moment in history. It's always been the case. And uh, it's that way uh, with every every tradition. Absolutely. And with and just as it is with technology and art and, and all the other uh, mm-hmm. forms of expression. Um, but they have to be adapted skillfully. And they have to be adapted in a way that uh, respects what is right and good about the teachings and not uh, adulterate them or corrupt them. And so the, the teachers who, did, uh, who had the biggest impact were those who did that well. Um, and regardless of which tradition it was, you now have an upsurge in America of uh, uh, Christian mysticism and Jewish mysticism and more and more interest in Sufism. Um, and because those, te- you know, some people are adapting them well to the modern world. Right. Yeah. And this gets at this, this, this kind of perennial question about the letter and the spirit of a tradition mm-hmm. or, you know, um, tradition versus transformation. So uh, Rory Dixon, who I previously had on the podcast, he recently wrote a book called Living Sufism in North America Between mm. Tradition and Transformation was the, the subtitle. Mm. And mm. I think you would really like it. It reminded me of your book. There's a lot of parallels. But, um, you know, one thing that it brought up for me is the whole point of a tradition is transformation. It's supposed, like, you you, you know, that's yeah. that's the essence of it, and um, however, there's a balance because every tradition starts with an individual who has, you know, a, a, a an experience of transcendence, an awakening, an opening, and then attempts to, ex, you know, explain that and and model that and transmit that to his followers, and what happens is. In the, in the initial phases, it tends to be very kind of organic and natural. But then over time, necessarily, people want to preserve and protect those teachings so they don't become lost. But what can happen is that over time, there is a, you know, I don't know if ossification is the word, but a kind of concretization of the tradition, which can create a tension where it, you know, there's this, there's perennial tension between how do we adapt this to the new set of circumstances or the new culture, this spreading to a new uh, land, and maintain the efficacy of this yeah. tradition without... Because if we hold on too much to the letter, then it's not going to be uh, transmittable to a new set of circumstances. But if we, if we let it go too much, then it loses its efficacy because it just becomes too, you could say, wishy-washy or something like that. And um, so, yep. yeah, I'm just curious. No, that's very well said. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, there's so many interesting, because when I was thinking about this, of course, yoga um, is on every corner in every major city um, in America. And an interesting parallel within the Sufi tradition is Rumi is like the number mm-hmm. one selling poet in America and Rumi memes and I know. Rumi coffee mugs and Rumi this and that, right? <laughs> and so, but it, I see yep. a similar phenomena is that when things become extremely popular, um, they can easily become diluted or watered down or divorced even 
from their source. That's right. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing because how many people step into a yoga studio and you highlight this in the book and they're just going for for to have a more you know toned physique at first but then you know they see a picture of a guru on the wall or someone hands them a book and or the, with a sense of calm and tranquility that comes after them after class and then it's a it's a doorway into the deeper tradition and same with Rumi at first it's just all about love and wine but then you go a little deeper <laughs> and you see wow what what, yeah. is, what is he really getting at here that's right well that's see now you're 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 hitting on some very important things and um, this business of how you carry a, a, a teaching into changing times is uh, is very fa is fascinating historically but it's also a very delicate thing. And so you have all these teachers that came here just to, to keep the uh, topic on, on what I covered in American Veda. Uh, and then the teachers die. Mm. And, and what do the disciples do? How does, it, how does, it, how does the, uh, the work continue? How does it uh, move on to the next generation and the generation after that? Uh, and, uh, and so you then have the possibility, as you saw with every religion that you just described it, of um, dilution and distortion, because you always have people who are holding tight to what the founder, you know, the great, the great guru who started it all, um, would have wanted or done. And they uh, have to rely on their own state of consciousness mm. to, to um, interpret or uh, sort of perceive what um, the founder would have wanted but their consciousness is not the same as the founders and the times are different from the founders time and so you start to see schisms where people argue over what should be done and that's where you get you know organizations breaking off from each other and different uh, sects and different uh, groups uh, you know and arguing and and uh, interpreting things in their own way, which is kind of what happens not only to every religion, but to different branches within every, every tradition. And, and that's kind of inevitable because there's always, you know, the people who follow are usually not at the same level of consciousness as the, the founder who had the original uh, revelation, so to speak, uh, or the, are not at the same skill level. And when it comes to interpreting and transmitting the teaching, so that's that's a very common thing. Uh, one one way to look at this, uh, I, I always find, you know, is and is to get away from the subject of adaptation for a minute. There's always an uh, Houston Smith, the great scholar of religion who died recently, mm -hmm. always distinguished between the exoteric part of religions and the esoteric the exo exoteric are the parts that I, I i described in those first of the five functions the first three of the five functions the outer stuff um the you know the, the rituals the customs the the belief systems and all that where there's a lot of differences but then you have the esoteric, the inner practices, the inner transformation, the inner transcendence, and that's where you find the uh, essence of the teachings and the and the um, the most um, 
the the area where all the teachings converge. Right. So so uh, as when the emphasis is on that on the esoteric, there's a greater chance that the teachings will survive over time, because the other stuff changes. That stuff, you know, the inner stuff does not. That and if you keep that effective. Uh, then the chances are, you know, any changes in, in the outer aspects of things uh, will not uh, mess things up too much. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but you're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, and, and this is a big topic of conversation in the yoga world. Hmm. You know, uh, there's been a, was a good reason to be concerned that um, – Yoga can lose its way from its original uh, definitions and r- original power and uh, beauty and, and uh, power to transform people's lives if it gets all caught up in the superficial things that happen when something gets popular and people can make money off of it and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. At the same time, as you said, even the superficial aspects of yoga are, are can be a door into the deeper aspects, and um, that's that's where uh, the hope lies. Mm. So maybe you could talk about if we look at the frame it like this, some of the key ways that Indian philosophy has influenced the West. You know, we talk about ideas like Nirvana enlightenment reincarnation karma but then on the other hand you mention ways in which america has changed um indian philosophy when it comes to these lands so you for instance one example that stuck out in the book is you talked about the different relationship between guru figures in the east Mm -hmm. it traditionally was something different and there's been a lot of negotiations in the west on what it means to to have you know a lineage and a guru Mm-hmm. with westerners so maybe you could talk about that those parents yeah well that's that's you know always what happens when um things of value move from one culture to another i've often i say i joke with my uh indian friends that yes of course yoga and uh vedantic uh, a change on the surface when they come to america you know the whole you, you know the structure of a yoga studio kind of thing. Was, you know, wasn't done like that in India. Uh, and uh, one of the examples I often give is uh, Paramahansa Yogananda, who's you know was one of the great figures in bringing uh, Indian teachings to the West. Who I'm whose biography I'm writing now. Um, you know, he saw very early on that. Uh, Americans had a certain way of doing things, and so he adapted rather quickly, and, and he started having Sunday services. Hmm. That, that, you know, and to this day, if you go to one of the uh, uh, organizations in his lineage, it, you know, on a Sunday morning, it'll look like a church service. Hmm. But, but it's, it's Vedanta. The, the philosophy, the idea is Vedanta, even if, you know, somebody, uh, there's a person behind a pew a uh, platform and people sitting in you know in rows of chairs or pews um uh th- there are certain 
the outer forms were adapted, but the essence of the teaching is pure, pure uh, Vedanta as it always was and always will be. Um, so it's not that um, the West changed the teachings. It's that it adapted the teachings to forms that make sense in the West. And so, uh, or that fit the Western lifestyle. When I uh, first learned to meditate uh, in 1968, when after the Beatles were in India and I, I took up transcendental meditation, um, I paid a fee for a course. That was very um, controversial at the time because, you know, that's not the way things are done in India. Just like Yogananda, there's no Sunday morning services in Indian temples. It's not like that, uh, although some now have that because, you know, people, they've adapted the Western, you know, workday routine. And so um, things, things on the outer level adapt. And I joke with my Indian friends that, you know, when Indians discovered uh, the technologies that were created in America, they adapted them to the Indian lifestyle. So, you, you know, they adopted uh, the technology of movie making and created Bollywood. Mm -hmm. they, didn't they didn't just make uh, Hindi versions of American movies. They, made, they adapted it to their own art forms and their own uh, culture. But they use the technologies, just as we use the technologies of consciousness transformation that came from the East and the uh, frame, the intellectual, the understanding of what they are and, and have adapted them. So yoga, Hatha Yoga uh, sort of came on the heels of the um, – it was always here. I mean, there were people teaching yoga as we now know it, Hatha Yoga, asanas, uh, you know, uh, for over a hundred years, but the big yoga boom of the last twenty or twenty-five years came on the heels of the uh, aerobics mm. movement and the aerobics craze. So a lot of that took on the similar form. <laughs> and and uh, what's interesting is now you have uh, Western-style yoga studios in India, mm. and and so you know that's that's a common common thing and as long as the teachings retain their integrity the outer forms uh, can change uh, in a way that makes sense and, and uh, makes it available to more people there's a kind of democratization that goes on in America um, a lot of the gurus who came here you know they made their teachings available to anybody who wanted to learn them uh, including uh, women and uh, non-Hindus and, you know, all that, which was uh, very different from the way uh, things might have been done in, in Orthodox Hinduism in India. And so that the phenomena we're talking about, the positive end of that is it makes these teachings and, and practices available to many more people than would otherwise be the case. And that has changed our culture. You know, we, to come back to one of the things you mentioned earlier, 
these yogic teachings have uh, had a huge impact on American life. And people, uh, it's one of the reasons I wrote American Vedas, so people would uh, appreciate that more. Um, the, the, the trends in American spirituality um, over the last uh, 40, 50 years owe a great deal to the uh, introduction into our culture of the uh, teachings of Asia. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there you go. It's great. And um, mm -hmm. you mentioned in the book the kind of nuts and bolts of how, how it spreads. And you mentioned one level was the kind of academic engagement, but then the kind of floodgates opening are with the arts. And you mentioned the Beatles, and you had a quote there about, you know, the Beatles going to India being one of the most significant religious pilgrimages in the history of mankind because all of a sudden, you know, the biggest pop band ever is, you know, on every major newspaper that's showing them with a guru. And this really takes it out of just a niche, you know, seekers right. and academic to, to pop culture. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the academic sphere than the arts and how that spreads. Well, uh, I'll expand it even a little further. One of the things I do in the book is, you know, people are familiar with some of the, the gurus who came here. But what I pointed out is the teachings appealed to a, a large cross-section of Americans. Some of those Americans were people of prominence. And those people absorbed the teachings themselves, integrated it into their own field of expertise, and then became transmitters of those teachings, sometimes in very uh, explicit ways and sometimes in very subtle ways where people were absorbing the essence of these teachings and not even realize it was anything having to do with India or, or uh, spirituality. So some of those people were scientists, some of those people were philosophers, some of those people were psychologists, some of those people were scholars of religion, or in the case of someone like Joseph Campbell, a scholar of the world's mythology, some of those people were novelists, some of those people were poets, and I have, you know, profiles of the most prominent of all of those people in those categories, people whose names are household words like J.D. Salinger and T.S. Eliot and um, some of the other, you know, great uh, figures of, of uh, Western uh, life or American life in the last century. And some of those people were musicians. And uh, when the Beatles took up transcendental meditation, uh, it's hard to um, uh, uh, accept this on a personal level, but <laughs> in August, that will be 50 years mm. since that moment. And then next February, February 9th of 2018, will be 50 years from the time they went to India, to Rishikesh, uh, to be with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. And as you said, that... Um, was covered by every media outlet for what passed 50 years ago as mass media, which meant 
newspapers, national magazines, uh, television, radio, all of that. Now it would be all over the, you know, the web and, and everything. And, and, you know, young people may not uh, fully realize how famous and popular the Beatles were. But I always say if you take Beyonce and Justin Bieber and then multiply them by 10, mm -hmm. it would be something like what the Beatles were in, in the late 60s. And um, people just, it opened the floodgates. Overnight, people knew what a mantra was. People knew what a guru was. People knew there was a place called an ashram. There were, uh, and that the main thing was they, they realized that, the, uh, that India had something to offer. That if, if the most famous and richest artists in the world, these four young men who could do anything, you know, they had the resources and fame and opportunity to do anything, chose to go and sit in med deep meditation in a funky ashram in India, there must be something of value. And at first, of course, it was only young people who admired the Beatles and or even, you know, worshipped them in certain ways who were interested and they, you know, would do anything the Beatles said is good. So they did it. And that put meditation on the map in a big way, you know, in, in a, in a mass way. And, but what was interesting really about that was most fads that appeal to the youth culture disappear very quickly. What happened in this case was the, you know, the Beatles and, and then other well-known uh, people uh, started to advocate meditation and gr older people. Well, for one thing, it didn't just affect the, the lineage that the Beatles were uh, involved in. All the teachers, all the other gurus who were here at that time started doing great business and all the yoga places started doing great business because, you know, it was, it was hip and it was fashionable, but it only lasted because of what we talked about at the beginning. It was transformative. It changed people's lives. It wasn't just a belief system. It wasn't some, you know, cult. It was really transformative. And young people's lives started to change for the better. And they talked about it. And older people then said, well, what's going on here? And some of those people were scientists who did the very first studies on meditation. And once it became scientifically validated in scientific journals and then in, you know, popular magazines like Time and Newsweek and so forth, the, and, and people like uh, medical doctors and psychiatrists and psychotherapists started to uh, recommend it as having value, just like yoga is now. That's when it went into the mainstream, and it has stayed there ever since. And that's why the Beatles' uh, moment was such a transformative one and such an important one. I do presentations just about that, about the Beatles, and I do it you know, with multimedia and sometimes when I can with a live band and we go through that whole period in the Beatles' lives and how it affected their music and how it affected all the rest of us. It's a fabulous story and um, uh, one that really had uh, world-changing effects, not just musically. Uh, you know, it wasn't uh, just a, 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 an arts phenomenon, but the arts as a transmitter of great ideas 
and transformative, culturally transformative teachings um, is often underestimated, but uh, we learn a lot from the poets and the musicians and the storytellers. And in this case, you know, it, it was really radically transformative. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that really stuck out. You know, uh, there's one, uh, teacher of mine who said art is the means by which the deepest truths of a religion are articulated to the masses. So very few mm. people are going to necessarily read high level philosophy or theology or metaphysics. But if you, the great poetry and the great song and even the great calligraphy or architecture. Um, That's right. That's right. You step into that or you experience that and you're going to get some very deep openings into the deep realities of those kind of lofty subjects. Well said, very well said. And, and that's not just a new phenomenon with, you know, the mass uh, media. Uh, look at the, look at the great cathedrals and the yep. great, mo the great mosques, like the the blue mosque in Turkey and and um, in Istanbul and 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 the you know Notre Dame and places like that, but also think of the music. Yeah. Think think of 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 uh, the the think of Bach and you know the the Bach mass uh, requiem and all those uh, wonderful classical pieces that transmitted these not just ideas, but the experience of, of some transcendence. Uh, think of the dervishes, you know, to go back to, to Sufism. Um, the, the great uh, singers, the great operas, these things, you know, there were masses in those days who um, were illiterate. They weren't able to read, you know, philosophy books or the Bible or anything, but they would go and and they would hear the music, and it would be uh, a teaching. Sure. Yeah, it's amazing that you mentioned uh, the Blue Mosque because you know after I've you know been on the Sufi path for you know about a decade, and you know obviously at Ellen I was like spending years in the Middle East studying Arabic, and like obviously my parents who God bless them very open minded, but still you know post nine eleven it's a strange world. So, yeah. you know, having some fears and I'm trying to like, no, no, read about Sufism. Like this is, you know, this is their softer side and very, they're very beautiful people. So very open. But, you know, at one point a few years ago, my father and I went to Turkey and, you know, we went into the Blue Mosque mm -hmm. and I felt in that moment in just the vastness of, of and the beauty and the, and the proportion and then the, but also the subtlety of the calligraphy and the tile and then the, the silent people praying in silence or, or, you know, saying they're, they're thicker with the, with the beads. Um, I knew in that moment that my father understood what Islam was really about more than all the mm. 10 years of me talking about it, just in that moment. Sure. 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 So yeah, I very good. to, I wanted to, there was a few things that stuck out to me in the book that are kind of like similarities or comparisons between Vedanta and Sufism as far as it coming to the West. And I wanted to mention those because I thought you'd find them interesting and then maybe you'd have some reflection on these. So okay. the first one was that I really loved how you highlighted the transcendentalists and Ralph Waldo Emerson in particular. And, you know, 
this is someone who is like the American philosopher, as you mentioned, so central mm-hmm. figure. And mm-hmm. so him, you know, reading Vedanta and being so influenced by Indian philosophy is no subtle matter. Um, but another thing is that he loved Sufism, but particularly Persian Sufism. So he was very much into Hafiz, and he actually translated many of the Persian Sufi poems into English from the German, right? Goethe and stuff like that. And so, you know, many people say like it was like um, Neoplatonism first, then Indian philosophy, and then third, Persian Sufism that kind of like influenced Emersonian philosophy. So Interesting. I didn't know that about him because, you know, I was focused on his connection to India. But it doesn't surprise me. But it's very interesting to to, uh, note that. Yeah, and he mentioned about some other Persian uh, poets like Sa'adi that, you know, he said, there's a quote where he said, this is as important as the Bible, these these writings, you know. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, what an amazing time because you pointed out in one of your talks that, this was a time where the vast majority of Americans had never met a Jew, never even met a Catholic, <laughs> let alone, That's, right? And they're deeply right. diving into these other traditions. So it's, uh, and then the... Well, s- mm-hmm. some people, some people were. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Important people were. There were some very important people. So then, and then the second, you know, um, point was you mentioned the Parliament of Religions in 1893 when mm-hmm. the first you could say living representative of Indian mm-hmm. philosophy comes in Vivekananda. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is, this is a huge event and really introduces this tradition to Westerners. And what's interesting is that uh, at the exact same parliament, um, there was, this was like kind of the first introduction of Islam to the West as well, because there was one representative of Islam at that parliament of religions, mm-hmm. and it was Alexander mm-hmm. Russell Webb. And he was actually an American convert. He was the consul mm-hmm. of the Philippines. Mm. And, and so he actually came, and I think he even petitioned the Ottomans to like build like an Ottoman tent there and all these type of things. So it just made me wonder if, there, if they met or you know, what that conversation uh, would have been. I, like. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice to know? Amazing. But, but of course, of course um, it wouldn't have been Vivekananda's first uh, Muslim. Right, exactly. I mean, you know, he, there he was in, in Calcutta, mm-hmm. growing up there, and uh, his, his teacher, Sri Ramakrishna, famously uh, dove deeply into Islam when he was sort of experimenting. And uh, he, he, there were Muslim teachers. There's a great tradition of Sufism in, in India, mm-hmm. uh, where, which, you know, sort of blended yogic elements and uh, Vedantic elements with the Islam that had come from the Middle East, and, um, and mostly Persia. And um, so uh, he, they probably would have gotten along famously. Mm. But I, I'd love to, you know, look into that. I may have to ask one of my Vivekananda experts. Mm-hmm. Well, one of my teachers, an influential American Muslim uh, teacher, he actually wrote a biography of Alexander Russell Webb, too, so I'll try uh-huh. to get you that book. Maybe there's something well, in there. Well, t- take a look in it and see if, if he mentions uh, you know, um, Vivekananda. Because, you know, Vivekananda emerged as the superstar of that right. parliament. But as you said, you know, he wasn't the only Hindu. 
and there were Buddhists and Muslims as well. It was mostly, you know, Protestant uh, Americans, but mm -hmm. yeah, that's fascinating. And then the the third uh, comparison that I noticed was that, and we kind of touched on it, is that in the early 1900s, you know, you have Yoga, Yoga, Yogananda and Inayat Khan, who are these two kind of pivotal figures who come with, you know, Vedanta and Sufism, both from India. And they, in a very similar way, they start selectively presenting the tradition in a way that speaks to, um, you know, the, the you know, theosophy and things like that, and just the spiritual yeah. seekers. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And then, I wonder if they met. Me too. I really do. And then there's, uh, if we fast forward to the, the counterculture, and this is like a, a topic that I really love, the counterculture of the 60s and 70s, because um, I see my, my own generation, you know, I was born in the 80s, and so coming up with a kind of metaphysical bookstore and the yoga centers, and that was just <laughs> the world, you know, it was easier to find books of the Dalai Lama or Rumi on the bookshelves of the house I grew yeah. up than it was to find the Bible. And that's because of you and your generation and and, and and so now, as I get older and I'm reflecting on my own journey, I see that period as so, um, so pivotal. But, yes. you know, you mentioned that um, Be Here Now um, um, was like kind of the Bible of that, that hip counterculture hippies. And um, obviously there's so much interesting uh, to talk about there. But one thing that's interesting is that the, the actual editor and organizer of that book was named Steve Durkee. And he also founded the Lama Foundation. Ah. And he is a very interesting individual, but he was very close with uh, Richard Alpert. And so then when, when Richard Alpert went off to India to become Ram Dass, um, what's interesting is that, you know, then that book was compiled, but Steve Durkee would, would go to the Middle East. He went to, first he went to Jerusalem, actually, and, 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 and met Sufis there. And he would become Nuruddin Durkee. And so he mm. became a Sufi Muslim. And oh. um, he came back to the Lama Foundation. And he, you know, because the Lama Foundation obviously is very kind of like ecumenical. It's open to the, all the different spiritual teachers. So, but he wanted to create a uh, Muslim-specific center. And so he created something called, I think, Dar al-Islam. He got some, a bunch of money from the Middle East and created a really beautiful center in the Middle East, I mean, in, in New Mexico. But then yeah. there was some, some, some drama that happened because I think the funders from the Middle East found out it was a bunch of Sufis and they were kind of more exoteric Muslims that were not supportive of that. So the money dried up, anything. <laughs> anyway, it kind of, um, there was that. But then even more broadly, um, I know many of the elders in the Sufi community in America have, have talked about their journeys and they were people that also turned east for spirituality and I guess the, the easiest way to get to India at the time was to take a boat to Istanbul and then go kind of on the train, the Orient Express, right? Mm, and mm. so, but it's interesting, you're crossing through Turkey and Iran yeah. and Afghanistan and Pakistan yeah. before you get to India. These are all Muslim countries. And That's so... Right. Many people, these kind of long-haired hippies who were going to India to find a guru, they spent significant amount of times in these Muslim countries, which, of course, of course, now many of those countries, they're harder to travel through. But at the time, they were very open and very traditional. Right. 
And so many of the people that were actually going to India to found a guru found a Sufi sheikh and became Muslim and took the path along the way without even setting, setting off with that intention. That's fascinating. And, uh, and, and a whole lot of people, and, and most of them traveled over land mm -hmm. from, from Istanbul uh, over, you know, through those, uh, the Khyber Pass and so forth. Um, and uh, a, a, an awful lot of people uh, mixed them to they didn't necessarily right. be didn't necessarily become uh, Muslims in a formal way or or become Hindus or, or Buddhists but they drew from what was appealing to them from all those traditions so you have people like Lex Hickson yes in in the 60s who was a sheikh and a part of a, a, a Sufi tradition and also, you know, a Vedantist who wrote the wonderful biography of Ramakrishna. And uh, so you, you had a lot of people, I wouldn't say mixing and matching, because that sounds uh, trivial and superficial, mm -hmm. but finding something of value in, in all of the traditions, uh, the mystical traditions, uh, that have... Um, transformative practices and transformative teachings. I'll bet you a lot of the people who have made Rumi so famous are also yogis. Yep, and actually that's, that was the, another point I was going to make about this counterculture. So one of the main Sufi teachers that came a bit later in the 70s um, was someone named Guru Bawa. Mm. And he was from Sri Lanka. And he mm. was a very you know, amazing and powerful uh, teacher, and he was in Philadelphia. And actually, people called him Guru Bawa because this was the time of gurus, but he was actually a Sufi sheikh. And he said, call, mm. call me Guru because titles don't matter. That's great. And so yeah. you have this Sufi sheikh going as, 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 as Guru Bawa, and he had a, a huge effect um, on Sufism in America, one of the, as far as the second half of the 20th century, he was probably the most influential individual, and he's buried. He has a traditional kind of like Indian uh, gravesite with a big dome in in, in outside of Philadelphia. Um, and what's amazing about him is that one of his disciples or the people that would come to his gatherings was a young Coleman Barks, and so Col Coleman Barks would become the one who made the popular translations of Rumi. And it was, uh, it was Bawa who told him to do that, that mm -hmm, you, you have mm -hmm. to do this. So really, you know, exactly what you're saying is, you know, someone like Coleman Barks, who's, again, just seeking and looking at all these mystical traditions, and then becomes the person through which Rumi uh, is kind of opened to the popular culture. That's right. And I, I have heard of Bawa, and um, um, I think I've even quoted him in some uh, you know, other other works that I've done. Mm. So, yeah, all of that is true. And, and one of the things, if, if we could sort of sum it up, mm. um, um, a lot of what we're talking about here is a kind of verification mm. of what uh, uh, has been called the perennial philosophy, hmm. of which uh, people like Joseph Campbell and Houston Smith and Aldous Huxley were great um, uh, spokespersons for. But it's this understanding that on the deep level of experience, of spiritual experience, you find commonality uh, among all the pathways. And this is a core 
teaching of Vedanta, and it is one of the main things that have been transformative in American to American spirituality. This notion that there are many pathways to the divine, and that if you take any of them deep enough, you end up in the same experience of unity and transcendence that um, we all can share. That and that distinction between the outer exoteric forms of religion and the deep transformational and transcendent experiences that we associate with the word mysticism, um, that's where the commonality is, and that's where the unity is. And all of what we've been talking about is... Uh, are examples of that, and 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 those that awakening, that awareness, in and of itself, has been very transformative to American culture. And people who get that, people who understand that, people who um, experience it, are the people who will be the least likely to cause trouble between mm-hmm. people you know of different uh, who are who are from different pathways and different cultures absolutely well thank you for your time it's really been uh, wonderful and there's a lot you know hopefully we can maybe do a round 2 someday i'm going to make sure that uh, put a link to your website as well as to the book mm-hmm. right. and um then we look forward to your, your next book. When is your, your next book uh, going to come? Well, if I, if I get off this call and get back to work, it might, I may meet my deadline, uh, and the book will be out uh, sometime in the spring of 2018. Beautiful. All right, well, we look forward to it, and we won't take you <laughs> okay. away from your important work any longer. <laughs> okay, thank you. Okay. It's been a pleasure. It's been great fun. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Path and Present Podcast. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so in a few ways. One is word of mouth. Um, people hear about the podcast mostly from people like you who listen and like it and say, I know someone who would connect with this or who would feel this or who would enjoy this subject matter. So continue to share with your family and friends. Secondly, you can subscribe, rate, and comment um, on the iTunes page of Path and Present. Subscribing means that the podcast, will, each episode will come directly to you when we release it. And rating and commenting means that it will grow and uh, come up in the iTunes rankings, which will allow it to be uh, available and uh, seen by more people. And then lastly, you can support financially on Patreon. Patreon is a site which allows people to give a small amount monthly to support um, art or any type of content. And we have a Path and Present page on Patreon. The link is on our SoundCloud page, SoundCloud slash Path and Present. And you'll find the Patreon link there. And yeah, you can support there. We're greatly appreciative of it. Uh, I guess lastly, lastly, keep us in your prayers, your positive thoughts, and your moments of remembrance. And thank you for tuning in. 
and being part of the global past and present family. One love. Amen. Mm-hmm.